For those of you who uh, uh, didn't receive an email that I sent out Monday or you didn't see the worship folder this morning, then you might not know, but Hopi and I, after 11 years here, we moved here 11 years ago this week, this past week, uh, we're moving to West Texas. And uh, this has been a decision that has been in formation for four months. It started in February with a phone call. I had no idea this situation existed, nothing I sought, but uh, God brought it to us and we wrestled and wrestled and made two trips to Texas and finally made a determination that this is what God wants for us. And uh, I'll be going there not to pastor a congregation per se. I don't know if you know, but I've been a pastor a very long time because I started very young. Uh, I planted our first church. I wasn't even 24 and a half, something that I would never recommend anyone do. Um, <laughs> but that's what I did. And, uh, and we've been privileged to pastor four, to plant four churches. And so, uh, in fact, my thesis and my master's um, degree is in church planning. It's always been my passion. And uh, so we've been here for 11 years. I have now pastored, as a lead pastor, a total of 48 years. And, uh, but I think God, in fact, I know God has a different plan now. We'll be going to El Paso to, I'm going to be a prof, I guess. I'm going to be teaching formal classes uh, to young men who are pastoring, planting churches, and I'll be coaching them outside of class and I'll say more about that in my message, but that's what we're going to be doing. Um, our house uh, sold on Friday, and a full asking price. I was nervous about it, and uh, but it did. God, God did that, and uh, he's a really great young man to do that. And that's uh, Ryan Phillips, and uh, <laughs> very grateful for it, Ryan. And uh, but we're leaving after the second service getting in our car, we're driving to El Paso. Um, you know, it's just too expensive last second flights and you have to rent a car when you're there. So we're gonna drive there because there's nothing more than I wanna do is drive through the desert for, tw for 1,200 miles. <laughs> um, we're gonna drive there and then we hopefully pray that we can, f we have to buy a house now that ours is sold. And so we have to buy a house. The goal is to be back next Saturday uh, because I want to be here for Father's Day. This is not my last Sunday. I think some people had the impression it wasn't. I'm so sorry uh, uh, that you had that impression. There will be a final Sunday. I will probably announce next Sunday our final Sunday. Um, and the elders would like to have a reception on that last Sunday, on Sunday evening at probably 5 o'clock for us, a farewell reception, uh, which will be, I mean, to be honest with you, it's very hard. It's been very hard. And, uh, but I would like a chance to say goodbye to everyone who wishes to say goodbye. Um, I selected a, a subject this morning because I think I've become very proficient at this subject over the last month, and it's getting worse. Um, so I hope it makes sense to you. Uh, it's something that I am experiencing to a great extent right now, and I'm sure that I will in the coming weeks. Um, I'll probably be here another month as what the plan is. The longest verse in the entire Bible is Esther 8 and verse 9. That one verse has 90 words, 90 words. The shortest verse is John 11, verse 35. And that verse consists of just two words, and those words are Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Scripture never mentions that Jesus laughed. Since Jesus was fully human, though, he experienced the full range of human emotions, so we can assume he laughed. 
but we know for certain that Jesus cried. What most people don't know is that Scripture records three separate times where Jesus cried. This morning we're addressing those three times to learn what it was that brought on those tears. Number one, Jesus cried over a separation. A separation. This is found in John 11, verses 1 through 45. We don't, there's not enough time to read that entire section, so let me just summarize this text. Jesus had a close friend named Lazarus. Lazarus had two sisters, Mary and Martha. The three siblings were roommates together in the same house in Bethany. Lazarus' house was the closest thing Jesus had to a home, as he often spent the night there. Lazarus had been extremely ill, and Lazarus died. Jesus had been called, but he didn't get to Bethany until Lazarus had died and been buried, about four days. Jesus was invited to the gravesite. He stood there at the grave, and he wept as per verse 35. In the ancient Greek language, the word wept here meant to shed tears and to cry silently. Some people have argued that we shouldn't be emotional at funerals or memorial services. I I couldn't disagree more. Emotion is appropriate. Emotion is expected at those times. It would be almost inhuman not to be emotional at those times. If we manifest emotion as Jesus did, and his was more of a controlled crying, not uncontrollable hysteria, but a controlled, almost silent sobbing. I remember one of the first funerals I ever conducted. Uh, Just before the service started, a woman approached the casket. The casket was open. And she was so overcome with grief that she literally fell into the casket, across the corpse, and cried in a loud, uncontrollable, almost hysterical scream. Uh, It was frightening to hear. And she was so distressed, she had to be pulled from the casket and taken to another room where after some time she regained her composure. What is a tear? What is a tear? Webster's dictionaries defined a tear as a drop of salty fluid. It consists of sodium, chloride, calcium, and some additional chemicals. This fluid we call the tear is secreted by the lacrimal gland. And from a medical perspective, this fluid uh, functions to lubricate the eyeball. In addition, it has a cleansing effect. An English scientist, Sir Alexander Fleming, proved human tears are effective microbe killers. It is said that one teaspoonful of tears contains enough anesthetic power to purify 100 gallons of water. But there is much more to a tear than just a biological connotation. The late Bible teacher M.R. Dehan co-created the daily bread booklet that we give to our desks, our guests on Sunday morning. He was a medical doctor before he became a Bible teacher and he said, quote, the tear is a distillation of the soul. That's because the tear is an external manifestation of what someone feels down inside his soul. Now, some people have the attitude that tears are a sign of human weakness. I've heard it said, you know, a father might say to a son, be a man, don't cry. I'm sorry, real men do cry. Um, The famous theologian and commentator Albert Barnes actually defined man as, quote, one who weeps. 
Some of the most famous characters in Scripture were men and women who wept. Abraham wept at the death of his wife, Sarah. That should be expected. Esau wept after he sold his birthright to his brother Jacob. He wept because he made a big mistake. Then Jacob wept at what he thought was the death of his son Joseph. Turned out his Joseph was still alive. Joseph wept at the moment he and his brothers were reunited in Egypt. He wept so loud that people outside Pharaoh's palace heard him weeping on the inside. Hannah wept because she didn't have a son, and so God gave her Samuel. Hezekiah the king wept when he asked God to extend his life. God gave him 15 more years after God said to Hezekiah, I have heard your prayer and I have seen your tears. Jeremiah the prophet wept so much, he was called the weeping prophet. He said in Jeremiah 9 verse 1, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night. David wept so much, he said in Psalm 6 and verse 6, All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. David's bed was literally soaked wet with his tears. He wept that much. David said in Psalm 42, verse 3, My tears have been my food day and night. Just as food is a constant, because we have to eat, David said his tears were also a constant. In Psalm 56, verse 8, David said to God, Put my tears into your bottle. Are they, meaning those tears, not in your book? The inference is that God records the times we have cried. And he records those times we have cried in a book. And notice, he stores our tears in a bottle. It was sometimes an ancient practice to take someone's tears and store them in a bottle. Those tear bottles were made from glass or pottery or alabaster stone. Sometimes those tear bottles were even buried with the deceased. David literally prayed as though God collected his tears in some celestial body bottle. In the New Testament, this same Lazarus we just mentioned, his sister Mary once sat at Jesus' feet and she wept. She wept so much she was able to wash his feet with her tears and then she wiped them with her long hair. Simon Peter denied Jesus three times and then went out and wept bitterly. Mary Magdalene wept when she visited Jesus' empty tomb after his resurrection. Paul said about himself in Acts 20, verse 19, that he served the Lord with all humility, notice, with many tears. Acts 20, verse 31, Paul commented on his time at Ephesus. He said, therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone Paul warned the Christian at Ephesus about false teachers, and notice how he did that. He warned everyone night and day with tears. Then Paul said goodbye to the elders at Ephesus. And this is a very emotional text for me to read. He ministered there for some time and had built a strong bond to these men. Acts 20, verse 36, Paul knelt down and prayed with them all. Verse 37, then they all wept freely meaning Paul and those elders at the Ephesus church all wept without restraining themselves, uncontrollable weeping. 
And then the men fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. John chapter 11 states for the first time that Jesus wept. And in that instance, he wept because he had experienced a separation from his close friend Lazarus. Death means separation. The essence of the word death is separation. Death causes a separation between the person that is deceased and those that are left alive. And that separation most often results in tears and should. This past Thursday, I had to do a quick trip to Southern California to conduct a funeral. Both the service and the interment were held at the Rose Hills Memorial Park in Whittier. And I'm sure some of, some of you might have been there before. It was the third time I had uh, officiated there, once in the 80s, then in 2001, and then this time. This cemetery is enormous. There are eight funeral chapels there. A typical cemetery has one. It has eight. Uh, they're, they're beautiful. One of them has a massive pipe organ. Uh, and each of those funeral chapels can conduct six services per day. So it's just packed all the time. Rose Hills is said to be the largest cemetery on the North American continent. And so I was there conducting the service for someone that had died more than a month ago. But that didn't matter. There were still tears from people in the audience because separation results in tears. It's interesting that the separation Jesus experienced was temporary because in just minutes after he wept, he would resurrect Lazarus from the dead. But even that temporary separation still upset him to the point he cried. We need to remember that although death separates us, as Christians that separation is temporary because we're guaranteed to be reunited in heaven where we will never experience another separation. That's the reason 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 13 reads that although we are saddened at another Christian's passing, we aren't saddened as others that have no hope. So what does that phrase in verse 13 mean? Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Others that have no hope are Christians who lose someone that person died, but that someone didn't have salvation. That someone was minus Jesus. So the separation between them then becomes an unfortunate, permanent separation. That's to be saddened without hope. One of the most difficult things I do is to officiate at a funeral or memorial service for someone that never professed faith in Jesus. Someone that never claimed Christianity. Because in that case, I am unable to offer those Christians there that are bereaved, I'm unable to offer them even the slightest hope of ever seeing that person in the afterlife. And that's sad. The unsaved are incarcerated in the ultimate hell apart from God. And according to 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 17, the saved shall always be with the Lord. To Christians, death doesn't mean goodbye, but death means we'll see one another another time, and probably sooner than we think. My parents are both deceased. My father passed on Father's Day, 2001. My mother passed on a Sunday in 2019, and both are buried together. My father buried first, my mother was placed on top of him. 
both buried together at the Veterans Cemetery in Leavenworth, Kansas, and it's a beautiful setting. And that saddens me because I miss them. But I'm comforted and I'm encouraged because we're going to be reunited in heaven. Arnold Schwarzenegger turns 76 next month. In a recent interview, actor Danny DeVito, who is 78 himself, presented him the question, so what's in the future for us? Meaning, Arnold, what happens to us after we die? Good question. Arnold's response wasn't so good. Arnold said, nothing. Nothing happens to us. We're six feet under. And anyone that tells you something else is an expletive liar. He said that speaking about death makes him uncomfortable and that heaven is a fantasy. He continued, we don't know what happens with a soul and all this spiritual stuff that I'm not an expert in. I agree. Uh, Arnold is not an expert on the afterlife. He should probably keep his mouth shut. It's doubtful he's ever read a single book on the subject, including the Bible. He needs to speak to his son-in-law. Actor Chris Pratt. Chris is a professing evangelical Christian, and I'm certain Chris would be excited to tell him that heaven isn't a fantasy. Heaven is the ultimate reality. So Jesus cried because of a separation. That separation was death. And um, in a month or so, we will be separated for a period of time, Hopi and I, from this congregation, and that will be a a time of much, much sadness and tears. Second, Jesus cried over sin. Jesus cried over sin. Hebrews 5, verse 7, notice, who, from previous verses, this is Jesus, who in the days of his flesh, meaning during that period of time on earth, where Jesus as God was also human form and flesh, as he is now, during that time on earth, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries. Vehement means forceful, passionate, and intense. So vehement cries are forceful, passionate, and intense cries. And tears, notice, and tears to him, God, who was able to save him from death. This verse describes what Jesus did on the night Thursday night, Maudie Thursday, the night before Good Friday, what he did in the garden that night called Gethsemane just before his arrest. And that is described in Matthew 26, starting in verse 36. Jesus came with them, his disciples, to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. Verse 37, and he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. Zebedee's sons are James and John both disciples. And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Verse 38, then he said to them, this is that inner circle of Peter, James, and John. He said to those three, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. Verse 39, he, Jesus, went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, oh, my father, if it is possible, Notice, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Some time ago, I brought an entire message on this passage. So let me just touch on this. Just hours earlier, Jesus 
had eaten the Passover meal with his disciples. It was during that meal he introduced communion. So the men had eaten together, 11 of them, because Judas Iscariot had left in the middle of that meal. The men ate that meal in an upstairs room in in Jerusalem. But then after the meal, Jesus left that room and his disciples and went to a garden called Gethsemane. Jesus would be arrested in that garden in just a matter of hours. But before that time, he wanted to pray. Jesus fell on his face. His fingers gripped the ground. He prayed with so much intensity that Luke's gospel reads that he sweat as it were great drops of blood. His nose was stuffed with mucus from so much crying. We know he cried there because we just read Hebrews 5 verse 7. He had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears. And between sobs and moans, Jesus prayed that if it were possible... He's asking his father in heaven, if it were possible, he wanted to be released from drinking the cup that God had prepared for him. That cup was a figurative cup, not a literal cup. And that different commentators have assigned different interpretations to that cup. Some believe that cup represented the cross. And Jesus actually prayed to get permission from God to avoid the crucifixion altogether. I do not believe that. Jesus had no intention of backing out of the crucifixion. I believe that this cup, this figurative cup, represented the sins he was scheduled to bear on the cross. I believe that cup represented the sins of humanity that he would bear on himself on the cross. 1 Peter 2, verse 24, who himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his own body on the tree, meaning the cross. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he, God the Father, made him his son Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. Where did that happen? The cross. This bearing our sins wasn't some academic exercise. This was an actual spiritual experience. And Jesus wanted to avoid it if it were possible. Remember, Jesus was the ultimate sinless sacrifice. Jesus was the holiest of all sacrifices. Jesus was the ultimate, perfect one. So he had a real repugnance and a horrific hesitation at the idea of taking on to himself the sins of humanity. So Jesus wanted to know, there in that garden, as he prayed, as he sobbed, as he cried, he wanted to know that from the Father, if it were possible to secure salvation for mankind and not require him to take on sin in order to do that. But that's not possible. So the father had to reject that request. So in a figurative sense, Jesus drank from that cup on the cross, and he drank it empty. He bore our sins, all of them. Because God required an innocent substitute to be sacrificed on behalf of the sinner in order to secure salvation. And Jesus was that innocent substitute. It used to be, in a societal sense, we tolerated sin to some degree. But now, now we're expected to celebrate sin. June being Pride Month is one prime example of that. Pride Month is essentially a celebration of sin. That's what it is. Pride Month is a month dedicated to celebrating 
and commemorating lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer pride. We are expected to celebrate these people that claim to be the personification of those different forms of sexual deviation. Millions attend pride parades. More than five million attend the pride parade in New York City. Stores advertise Pride Month. It's everywhere. Even the southern-themed restaurant Crackle Barrel is now celebrating Pride Month. This alphabet nonsense is being shoved in our faces all the time, and I'm sick of it. It's ridiculous. Ruth Bell Graham was married to evangelist Billy Graham until she died in 2007. And Ruth made the statement, if God doesn't judge this nation, then he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. She said that decades ago. What would she say now? Our nation is so depraved. It is so corrupt. It is so sin-saturated. Did you know one-third of all Internet downloads are pornographic sites? Did you know 10% of those that view that porn are under age 12? I'm concerned. Jesus wept over sin. That's probably a good recommendation for the church. Number three, Jesus cried over the unsaved. Jesus cried over the unsaved. Luke 19, verse 41. Now as he, this is Jesus, drew near, he saw the city, this is Jerusalem, and notice he wept over it. Jesus wept over a city, Jerusalem. Verse 42, saying, if you, meaning Jerusalem and its inhabitants, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. So Jesus is speaking to Jerusalem, but more or less speaking to himself. And Jesus said, Jerusalem, you could have had peace had you accepted me. Remember, Jesus is the promised Messiah. You could have had peace had you accepted me. But spiritual blindness has serious consequences in Jerusalem. You just couldn't see that I'm the promised Messiah. Verse 43, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side. This happened just as Jesus predicted. This is what is called already fulfilled prophecy, where a prophetical statement is made, and then from the historical record, we see that that prophecy was fulfilled already at another time after that in history. In 70 AD, General Titus and his Roman armies besieged Jerusalem, meaning those troops surrounded Jerusalem. And according to the famous Jewish historian Josephus, Titus and his men made an embankment completely around Jerusalem, which was a distance of five miles. That project took them just 10 days to complete because of the massive number of hours of manpower available to them. At the end of that time, the soldiers would just sit on top of that massive pile of dirt and just wait. Titus wanted to force Jerusalem to surrender because of starvation. It was just a matter of time before the food sources and the food supplies inside Jerusalem would be exhausted. And because there were thousands of Roman soldiers, 
out there waiting on that embankment. No one could go outside Jerusalem to secure more food. It would be suicide. It would be sudden death if anyone attempted to do that. So it was just a matter of time. He's starving the people out. Verse 44, and level you, Jerusalem, and your children, meaning Jerusalem and its inhabitants, within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. Notice Jesus predicted that Jerusalem would be leveled to the ground. And it was General Titus and his men that overran Jerusalem, destroyed the Jew Jerusalem temple, destroyed the wall around Jerusalem, that protective mechanism, completely destroyed that. 1.1 million Jews were murdered, and most of those that survived were scattered. Only a small Jewish remnant remained. Verse 44 continued, because you did not know the time of your visitation. The reason all of this would happen, the reason Jerusalem would be destroyed, Israel as a nation would at that time cease to exist and wouldn't become a nation again until 1948. The reason that happened is because the Jewish residents in Jerusalem didn't realize that the Messiah had just visited them. It says, because you did not know the time of your visitation. The people in Jerusalem didn't realize their Messiah, the one they were waiting for, had just visited them. So instead of crowning him as the promised Messiah and king, the people crucified him as a common criminal. Jesus wept over Jerusalem because he understood what was about to happen to them because of the rejection of him. He wept over them because they had refused him. And that happened per his prediction in 70 A.D. John MacArthur's grandfather was a pastor. And one morning he met a man on the street that was just standing there sobbing. Uh, he was alarmed, so he rushed up to this man and said, Is there something wrong? What's wrong? How can I help? And this man said, Yes, there is something wrong. Haven't you heard? The ship called the Titanic just sank. And Pastor MacArthur responded, Yes, I heard, and that, that's so sad. This man continued to sob and said, Yes, it's sad because all those people are dead. The problem is, in the church, our hearts are hardened and insensitive and callous to people around us that at some point are going to die and go to hell. When was the last time we actually wept tears because someone we care about needs Jesus and is at this point rejecting him? I announced this past Monday morning we were moving to El Paso, and I understand people's responses. I mean, someone for service said, you're leaving this for El Paso. And I'm going, yeah, that doesn't make sense, does it? El Paso is probably the, well, there's some other places, but it might be the armpit of Texas. I don't know. It's not, the scenery is not, no, it's not like this at all. Uh, but I didn't move here for the scenery, and I'm not moving there for the scenery. I'm moving for the people and the position and job God has for me there. And, and we're moving to do something that seems consistent with how God has gifted me. As I said earlier, I've been blessed to start four churches and revitalize three more. This is the last of those revitalization projects, and do so in four different states. And that's my basic resume in one sentence. And since its inception, this church, Shadow Mountain Church, 
has been affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, my education post-high school has been uh, in non-denominational, interdenominational schools. I don't have a Southern Baptist education. Uh, and uh, so I'm new to that. But uh, no evangelical denomination plants more churches than does the SBC. In 2022, Southern Baptist planted 745 churches. 106 of them were replants. In addition, there were 46 new campuses started from existing congregations. In just the U.S. and Canada, since 2010, altogether, the Southern Baptist Convention has planted more than 10,000 churches. Greater El Paso has more than a million people. It's a part of Texas, but unlike the other parts of the state, it's not a part of the Bible Belt. The percentage of evangelicals there is relatively small probably because of the large Hispanic population, and Hispanics primarily are Catholic. But uh, it is estimated that 96% of the El Paso population do not have a biblical worldview. It is an enormous mission field. El Paso is exploding in population, and there aren't enough evangelical churches to meet that increasing spiritual need. Texas Southern Baptists have projected their need to be 100 new churches planted before 2030. So to facilitate that need, a church planting training center is being established. Now most of these young men have their undergraduate degrees. Some of them are already in seminary. But these are men that want to plant, to start a congregation. And so this center is being established and I've been invited to be a part of that project. I will teach classes in a formal sense. Some of those classes will be live streamed to some other centers in other states. I will also coach church planters outside of class. Whereas now I pastor a congregation, I'm going to pastor men that plant churches. In addition to coaching and teaching pastors that are revitalizing dead or declining churches because the same giftedness and skill set is required for both projects. Now, this is something I wanted to do. In fact, I was told I would be able to do that when I moved here. The executive director of this state said, yes, please, come, we need that. That never happened. Um, I'm not saying I was deceived, but I'm not saying he lied, but pretty close to it. It didn't happen, you know. <laughs> I was disillusioned. And uh, so uh, I wanted to do this for the longest time. But because I don't have a doctorate, I never thought I could do that. But this particular situation doesn't require someone from academia, but an experienced practitioner. And so I guess that's me. The reason this venture uh, that came to me so interests me was that church planting, starting congregations, is the most effective means of evangelism available for the modern church. This is an evangelistic text from the Old Testament, Psalm 126, verse 5 and 6. Though who, those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. Verse 6, he who continually, continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing. In the New Testament, that seed for sowing is pictured as the Christian gospel. And as Christians, we are commanded to sow that gospel seed. Bearing seed for sowing shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves, meaning the harvest, with him. 
It seems from this text that tears are an essential part to an effective evangelism strategy because tears are the manifestation of a broken heart. And don't miss this. Our hearts need to be broken with the things that break God's heart. Our hearts are broken about a lot of things that have no eternal value. Our hearts need to break with the things that break God's heart. And lost souls estranged from God break his heart. That's the reason God sent his son Jesus to seek and save the lost. That's Luke 19, 10. Let me read to you something that is extraordinary. This is from Romans 9, starting at verse 1. These are comments from Paul. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. Now, why did he do that? Why did he say, I'm not lying? He's an apostle. He authored 13 New Testament books. We assume he is always truthful. There's a reason that he's doing this. First, Paul tells us he's telling the truth. He wanted his readers to understand that this wasn't some insincere and exaggerated claim intended to get people's attention. He first professed truthfulness, and then he added even more credibility to that statement because the first reads, I tell the truth in Christ. Adding Christ's name to that statement certifies the legitimization of that statement. Then Paul said, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. Now let me pull over and park for just a moment. We all have a conscience. We all have a conscience. Sometimes, though, that conscience, that human conscience inside us, deceives us. Sometimes we cannot trust our consciousness. Paul commented on that in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, that's now, some will depart from the faith, meaning some people will deconstruct their Christian faith. Some people will abandon the Christian faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Verse 2, speaking lies and hypocrisy, notice, having their own conscience seared or cauterized with a hot iron. To sear something is to burn or scorch the surface of something, to cauterize something, to deaden something, to render something insensitive. So Paul uses the phrase seared conscience to describe someone's conscience that has been rendered insensitive. It's been dulled. It doesn't operate as it was designed to do. It's as if spiritual scar tissue has dulled its sense of right and wrong. I understand some ranchers still brand cattle. That means a hot branding iron has seared the hide of the animal so that that particular part of the animal is then numb to additional pain. So someone's seared conscience is desensitized and dulled to right and wrong. And that condition is an increasing societal problem. One dramatic example of that is the current, and most of us are aware of this, the current Los Angeles Dodgers organization. The Dodgers have been a phenomenal organization since forever. And there are Dodger fans in this room that ought to be very grieved. There are 30 Major League ball Baseball clubs, and 29 of them this month are hosting a Pride Night. The only exception are the Texas Rangers, and I pray they don't renege. 
But the Dodgers are doing more than just hosting a pride night. The Dodgers are set to honor the, quote, Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence on its Dodger Pride Night celebration, June 16. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence are a supposed order of queer and trans nuns. It's a satirical protest group that dresses in drag, uses irreverent wit and anti-Catholic imagery to shock audiences. And shocking is probably an understatement. Next. That's sacrilegious. Next. This group holds an annual contest called Foxy Mary. Mary is in the mother of Jesus. Foxy Mary and hunky Jesus. This group features scantily clan men doing sexual pole dancing on crosses and shouting, go forth and sin some more. Members of that group do other things, I learned, that are so perverted and blasphemous, I, I can't even mention them in a public service. In addition, the Los Angeles chapter of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence will receive from the Dodgers on Pride Night the, quote, Community Hero Award. The legendary Dodgers announcer, Vince Scully, and he's, he is, everyone should know that name, he is held in the highest esteem. Um, Vince Scully was a devoted Catholic, and he would be so ashamed to know what his beloved Dodgers had done. I'm an evangelical. I'm not a Catholic. But in this case, that just doesn't matter. We should stand with our Catholic brothers and sisters against that sort of perverted religious hatred. Because it's Catholicism today, it's us tomorrow. But the reason the reason that blasphemous group is being celebrated in front of thousands and thousands of fans is because someone or someone's in the Dodger management has a seared conscience. Someone has a seared conscience that is insensitive and dulled to immoral perversion. If I were a Dodger fan, and I probably should do it as a non-Dodger fan, I'm not a baseball fan now, I'm just not. The Royals suck. They're just terrible. I never, I can't do it. They're just horrible. So I'm not into baseball. Um, if I were a Dodger fan, at minimum, I would write the organization a letter protesting that immoral filth. But notice, Paul's conscience wasn't seared. And we know his conscience wasn't seared because he said... In verse 1, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was in control of Paul's conscience, so his conscience could also witness the truthfulness of the statement he was about to make. This is very, very important. The reason this is so important is because if Paul didn't preface his comments in verse 1, assuring his readers, I'm not lying. I'm telling the truth. My conscience bears witness to this. There, if Paul didn't preface his comments in verse 1 like that, then we would be extremely skeptical about his almost unbelievable statements in verses 2, 3, and 4. Notice verse 2. Paul said that I have great sorrow. The Holman translation reads intense sorrow. The New Living Translation reads, bitter sorrow, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. This is sadness on steroids. It's difficult to imagine 
Paul's intense sadness and unending grief didn't manifest itself in tears. Commentators are convinced it did because tears were consistent with Paul's emotional constitution. Paul felt emotional grief, and that grief was manifested often in tears. Verse 3, For I wish that I myself were accursed from Christ. Accursed from Christ means condemned to destruction in eternal hell. Paul said, For I wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, verse 4, who are Israelites. Please don't miss this. Paul was using hyperbolic language to state that he was willing, if it were possible, he, were, he was willing to forfeit his own salvation. He was willing to forfeit his own salvation if that could somehow save his Jewish people from God's condemnation. In short, Paul was so grieved about those Jewish people that had rejected the Messianic Jesus. He loved them so much that he would, he said, he would, and he's not exaggerating, he's not lying. He would, if he could, give them his own salvation. Do you understand what Paul just said? Paul said he would be willing to go to hell if it meant his people could go to heaven. That was Paul's heart. And that's the heart I want to have. I have to admit, I had that heart. But in recent times, I've become comfortable. I've become complacent. And I'm begging God for that heart one more time. Because that's the heart I want to instill in men that are planting congregations. George Whitfield was an evangelist to the New England colonies. He was more popular among the colonists than Billy Graham was popular to us two centuries after him. George Whitfield said, I cannot spend 15 minutes with anyone without speaking of Christ to them. Believe me, I am willing to go to prison and even death for you, but I'm not willing to go to heaven without you. That was Paul's heart. And that, I pray, will be my heart. The summer after graduating from high school, I was employed for a company that did road construction. I'm not sure how I got the job. I, I think my parents found it and said, this is where you're working. <laughs> I had no autonomy at our house, no freedom. Uh, I did what I was told until I was able to leave home. And so I said, okay. I, prim I was a laborer. I primarily shoveled hot asphalt that was between 350 and 400 degrees. By the time it got to the job site on the back of this truck, I mean, we had to wear long sleeve shirts and heavy gloves and these special shoes, and it was, it was miserable. It wasn't a fun job, especially in the Midwest. In Kansas City, it's 100 degrees and temperature and 80 to 80, 80 to 90 percent humidity and that created a heat index that was almost unbearable. I mean it was difficult. I lost 16 pounds that summer. I didn't have 16 pounds to lose. There were two older black men that had been with the company for some time. Those men were probably in their late 40s, maybe around 50. Charles and Sammy Lee. Charles was the bigger man, and Sammy Lee was 
smaller. Charles and Samuel Lee sort of took me in, taught me what to do. And those men, during the time I was there, actually sort of adopted me. I still remember one morning, we got to the workyard where all the heavy equipment was. And I happened to see this large something in the back of a gravel truck. I said, Charles, what is that? He said, son, he, he actually called me son, which actually it's an honor that he would refer to me like that. He said, son, you're going to wish you hadn't asked that question. Let me introduce you to the 90-pound jackhammer. He was right. I wished I, wished I hadn't asked that question because I absolutely hated that thing. Those men had learned, not sure how, had learned I was a preacher's kid. So Charles and Sammy Lee would protect me, literally protect me, as a father would protect his son, protect me from the more undesirable elements that can sometimes be characteristic of that particular trade. Some road construction workers, maybe it's changed, maybe the climate's different now, but then those men could have some pretty filthy minds and mouth. But if one of the other laborers started using some obscene language, and I was in a position near enough to hear it, then either Charles or Sammy would stop them immediately. I can still remember Charles, what's your mouth? Larry's here, what's your mouth? And both men were different than the others. Charles and Sammy Lee didn't talk like that. Uh, those men didn't laugh at X-rated stories and didn't make misogynistic comments about women. Did none of that. And so I felt safe around them. And that's because they created that environment for me. Those men were very good to me. Very good to me. And I have never forgotten them. We had times to talk because we would eat lunch together. And I was just 17. Just 17. Just out of high school. And these were older men. And I'd always been taught to respect my elders. And I respected them. And at that time I was a total introvert extremely, extremely bashful. And I wanted so much, I remember, I wanted so much to talk to them about Jesus. But I was terrified to do that. I was afraid of rejection, which was a completely irrational phobia because neither of those good men would have rejected me. Neither of them. I am so ashamed to admit that I was an undercover Christian that summer. And because of that, I never had a spiritual conversation with them. The fact I said nothing to them about Jesus has haunted me ever since we said goodbye to one another at the end of summer. And people, that's five and a half decades ago, and I've never forgotten it. As I got older, married, finished undergraduate school, I was now... I was now on staff at a church and just before we started our first congregation and I remember I returned to Kansas City and my mission was I wanted to find those men. I wanted to, I wanted another opportunity to share Jesus. I wanted to see them so bad. The biggest problem was I didn't know their last names. I just knew them as Charles and Sammy Lee. I might have been told their last names but I had forgotten if I were told them. I tried to contact the construction company, but it had closed down. I tried and tried. I, I didn't know what to do. I couldn't find them. And I still think about Charles and Sammy Lee. 
If someone mentions the word regret around me, then those men and their faces and those names immediately come to mind. And sometimes I weep because I so want to see them in heaven. Those men cared about me. They didn't have to, but they did. And I cared about them. Could Charles and Sammy Lee have been Christians at that time and I didn't know it because I never brought it up? That's possible. Could Charles and Sammy Lee have become Christians during the time after we were together because someone else wasn't the Christian coward I had been and God used that person to bring those men to Jesus? That's entirely possible. And I so hope that happened. The problem is I don't know if that happened. And that knowing sometimes causes the tears to come. We can be emotional now. When the brokenness and concern those tears represent could motivate us to present Jesus to someone that we care about. Or we can wait, as I did, to be emotional until after it's too late. And there are no more chances and there are no more opportunities to present someone the gospel. And those are the tears I have now when I think about those good men. Don't do what I did. Let's bow our heads. We all cry. We've all shed tears for numerous reasons. But I think we need to get to the place where we learn to cry as Jesus did. Jesus cried over a separation. And we're separated from people we love. It should cause tears to come. Jesus cried over sin, and probably that's one of our greatest, greatest things we don't do. We don't cry over sin. We get upset at sin, and, but we don't cry over it. It doesn't break our hearts. And most of all, we don't cry over the unsaved. We all have friends. We all have relatives. We're all related to people. We know people that are lost, lost, do not have Christ, are not Christians. And we know that we are in their lives to bring them Christ. We know we're in their lives to share Jesus with them. And we have said nothing. We've done nothing. And if we continue and that person dies in their sin, then we will have tears, yes, as I do but it'll be too late. So do something now. Father in heaven, um, help us to be more like your son. Help us to be emotional and cry when it is appropriate to do so as Jesus did over these three things. He was our example. Help us to imitate him, mimic him, and to cry as he cried. So Father, I pray that hopefully this message uh, will have some impact on our hearts and our thinking and uh, make a difference in us. Help us never to get used to people around us without you dying and going to hell. Break our heart with the things that break yours, I pray. And I thank you. In the name of your special son, Jesus, amen.